Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 14. I'll prompt you when we get into the text, but keep your Bibles open so that you can follow along as we journey through the text today. May the words of our mouths and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable to you, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. God created each one of us in His image. Theologians call this the imago dei. You've heard that said a lot here at Huguenot Road, the imago dei. We are created to know God and to be known by God and others. Every person deserves to be treated with kindness, respect, and human dignity. That's what it means to be imago dei. We deserve to, to be treated that way, and, to, and we are called to extend that to others. This is inherent in Christianity. We are commanded to love God and to love neighbor as ourselves. We are called to a non-judgmental posture. The writer of James echoes that when he writes, believers must not show favoritism. James also says, who are you to judge your neighbors? Even just a few weeks ago, Pastor Aaron proclaimed from Hebrews chapter 13, verse 2, which says, Do not forget to show hospitality to strangers, for by so doing, some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. And the word hospitality is translated from the Greek philoxenos, the love of the stranger. As God's people, we are called to model basic hospitality, both in the Christian community here at church uh, and in the world around us. People expect that of the church. But just as Jesus was watched in His day, closely watched, so are we. When people who say they are Christians speak and they speak well, People think well of the church, but when people who are Christians do not represent Jesus very well, that reflects poorly upon the church. People will judge Christianity by what Christians say and do, and that's just the reality that exists. Tom Rainer has served as a pastor, denominational leader, and now spends much of his time consulting with churches, and he's written over 20 different books that help churches to be better at being church. One of the books he's written is called being a Wel- Becoming a Welcoming Church, and our guest services team read that earlier this year as they did some training. And in his book, he comments that most churches consider themselves welcoming and friendly, But then he writes, this is often not the case. If you've visited around churches at one point or another, perhaps you've experienced that. Rainer tells the story of a couple named Jim and Kathy who shared an experience that they had one Sunday morning. Like a lot of folks, they had gotten away from church, slipped away, got busy, had children and so forth, and felt the the need to get back involved. So with three children under eight, they managed to get all of them ready, and got there on time, which that's a small miracle in of itself, as you 
can imagine. And Kathy and Jim said that the church had a great website. It was very helpful for uh, them to understand what the service times were and how to navigate the campus and so forth. She also said, they also said that the parking was efficient and that there was good signage on the church's campus. They knew where to go. They also had guest parking, which was very helpful for them and their three kids. She also said that the church was friendly, genuinely friendly, and the people seemed to be happy to be there. Folks were very helpful getting our kids registered and so forth, getting them to their areas. Kathy then paused and said, we had an overall good experience, but there was one part that was not that good. It was nine to ten minutes after we sat down in the worship center, before we worship started, no one spoke to us. No one sat by us. No one even acknowledged us. It was really uncomfortable, she says, until the service began. Rayner writes that this happens consistently even in incredible churches. We're not perfect. Those things can happen. But his words to us help us to be mindful of those who are guests among us. That becoming a welcoming church means that we must be a welcoming people. Sometimes people are not comfortable going up to someone and talking to them, and we understand that. Other times people are thinking, I'm not sure if they're a member, so I don't want to embarrass myself, so I'm not going to say anything. I don't want to go up to somebody and welcome them, and they've been here 20 years. I would rather you go up to someone who's been a charter member and say, are you new? Than not go up and speak to someone at all. Guests are most often overlooked in churches in those first moments of a worship service. And that's where we need to be aware and welcoming. As long as this is something that's a concern among churches, we need a reminder that it's, an, it's important to be welcoming to our guests regardless of their background, regardless of their appearance or their walk of life. And thinking outside of the walls of the church, as long as there is a disparity of how people are treated because of their appearance, we have work to do. As long as people are judged by what they wear, where they live, what they drive or don't drive, etc., we need a reminder to be welcoming and respectful of all people, no matter what. And as long as there is racial prejudice and profiling in places like restaurants and retail stores and neighborhoods when people are looked at differently because of the color of their skin or their ethnic background or language uh, and get uh, attention rather others don't we have work to do it's a reminder that we need to be welcoming and hospitable to those who do come from different racial ethnic or language backgrounds than we do this message series perhaps will help with that as it focuses on being God's people. Being God's people comes from being with Jesus. We are shaped and formed into loving, humble, and welcoming people because we have journeyed with Jesus. 
We are transformed into God's kingdom people who are continually working out our salvation. As God's kingdom people, we discover, as one writer writes, the common humanity within all of us, and we allow the other, the the other person, to become our teacher, realizing aspects of God that no one else could unveil. This morning, we turn to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 14, verses 1 through 14, and we join Jesus in the home of a prominent Pharisee. As you know, the Pharisees were among the religious elite. The word Pharisee literally means to separate. They were separated from the rest of the people. They spent their days seeking to obey the law, the Torah of God, and to make it relevant based on the changing culture and situations that they saw. They produced a body of law that was in oral form until the third Christian century. They were considered legalistic and differed greatly from Jesus. They constantly had Jesus under the microscope. And He was often invited into their homes, mostly to be watched. This passage is set during a time of transition for Jesus. He's on the journey to Jerusalem. Scholars like Luke, Timothy, Johnson, and others refer to Luke's Gospel, chapter 9, verse 51, through chapter 19, 44, a big section of Scripture as the journey narrative, the movement of Jesus toward Jerusalem where He would experience suffering and death. Jesus is on that journey. The pressure and persecution from the religious leaders like the Pharisees increase daily. He's constantly being watched, especially for violations on the Sabbath. Yet, in the midst of that, He's always speaking. He's always teaching. At one time or another, He's either surrounded by the Pharisees, by crowds of people, or by His own disciples. And He addresses each one of those groups along the way. Today, we happen to find him addressing the Pharisees. He's been invited into the home of a prominent Pharisee, and there is a dinner party going on. As we work through this passage, we find three lessons from being with Jesus, the first of which is self-examination, that we are compelled to do some self-examination as we see what's going on here. So I'll read the first six verses and make some comment. One Sabbath, when Jesus went to eat in the house of a prominent Pharisee, he was being carefully watched. There in front of him was a man suffering from abnormal swelling of his body. Some translations call this dropsy. The older NIV, New International Version, calls it dropsy. Here, an abnormal swelling of his body. Jesus asked the Pharisees and the experts of the law, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. So, taking hold of the man, Jesus healed him and sent him on his way. Then Jesus asked them, If one of you has a child or an ox that falls into a well on the Sabbath day, will you not immediately pull it out? Again, they had nothing to say. Jesus was interrogated 
for his actions or his disciples' actions on the Sabbath numerous times. And it got worse as he went along. I wonder today why the man with the abnormal swelling, the suffering, the dropsy, was there in the first place. Did the Pharisee invite him to come to set Jesus up to see if Jesus would try to heal him on the Sabbath and then have more ammunition against Jesus? Perhaps. Was the man outside and slipped in? Could be. I think the former. Jesus was carefully watched as he went about this healing. And he made his point. If your ox or your child falls into a well on the Sabbath, aren't you going to pull it out? And there a rhetorical answer would be, absolutely. And then Jesus says, well, what's wrong with healing someone on the Sabbath? And that's what got him crucified. But if we take a look beneath the surface here, there's something going on, I believe, as a teaching that Luke incorporates for the first century church and for us today. The man who was suffering from the abnormal swelling or the dropsy had a condition today that doctors would consider the result or a symptom of something else. It's not a disease in of itself but a symptom of kidney failure or congestive heart failure or both. The body's inability to process fluids normally causes the body to retain the fluid throughout the body and there is significant swelling and often medicines like Lasix is is prescribed to, to get that fluid off. Some of you have experienced that. I know in my own family I've dealt with that and in my extended family. I wonder if Jesus healed this person as a way of communicating to the Pharisees that they were puffed up and bloated in their religion. Just as this man was all swollen from, his, from an, a, a disease that caused that, could Jesus be giving a subtle reminder to the Pharisees that they needed to do some self-examination and deal with their puffed-upness or their bloated religiousness, their judgment, their hypocrisy? I wonder if Luke isn't using this as a teaching tool to the first century Christians and to us today, that often we need to take a step back as Christian people to do some self-examination, to confess our sins of judgment and self-righteousness and pride and be forgiven. I wonder. I believe the next section of Scripture helps us to receive a lesson in humility. Verses 7 through 11. He's at the dinner party. He's addressed the Pharisees. And now he addresses the guests. When he noticed Jesus, when Jesus noticed how the guests at the party picked the places of honor at the table, there would have typically been a couch where they reclined at mealtime. And the most prominent person would have sat in the middle of the couch 
And then the more prominent people to him would have come along the right and the left side, and then people would gather that way. So people were clamoring to get the best seat. When he noticed how they were picking the places at the table, he told them a story, a parable. When someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor, for a person more distinguished than you may have also been invited. If so, the host who invited both of you will come and say to you, Give this person your seat. Then, humiliated, you will have to take the least important place. But Jesus says, when you are invited, take the lowest place. So that when your host comes, he will say to you, friend, move up to a better place. Then you will be honored in the presence of all the other guests. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Jesus is giving a a lesson in humility. Take the lowest place. There's a passage in 1 Kings chapter 3, verses 5 through 15, where Solomon is now given the throne. Um, He is the son of David, and he's new in this role, and God speaks to him, and God says to Solomon, ask for whatever you want me to give you. And Solomon doesn't ask for the world. Solomon asks for wisdom and understanding, the ability to lead and make good decisions. And God honored his prayer. And then God said, Solomon, since I I would give you anything and you just asked for wisdom, I'm going to give you all the other things that you didn't ask for. When we take the low place, I believe that God honors that. Not talking about a prosperity theology or that we're going to get rich or something like that, but that we will receive the blessing of God when we take the low place, when we are humble. This is the example that Jesus constantly sets for us. In our church, as you heard Miss Amanda saying, uh, we often come in and we try to get the best seat. And for Baptists, do you know where that is, Sue? It's not here on the front row with you. It's in the back, right? I have to walk 50 yards to get to where the people are sitting. And finally, I see you, right? Um, So, folks, when we come to church, try to come up here sometime, right? We have these wonderful pews that are not so worn uh, up here. And uh, reserve the good seats in the back for guests as they come in. All right? Try, try it sometime. Uh, it's, I promise you it'll be okay. All right. And the third lesson is that we are to be a wellspring of hospitality. A wellspring. That's where the word welcome comes from. A, a well which brings forth water. A wellspring of hospitality. And uh, the word well, and then the word to come, to come forth. This uh, is a way that we overflow with love and grace to others who are with us. And the last part briefly, Jesus said to his host, so first the Pharisees, then the guests, and now the, the host in the last part, when you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers or sisters, your relatives or your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back, and so you will be repaid. He's talking about there's a motive sometimes If we invite those who are our favorites, we're expecting or will be expected to give something in return. But Jesus said in verse 13, but when you give a banquet, invite the poor, 
the crippled, the lame, and the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. There will be a heavenly banquet, and it will be wonderful, more wonderful than we could ever possibly imagine. And all will be at that table. There's a story from Philip Yancey that strikes chord with this in his book, What's So Amazing About Grace? He cites a, an article from the Boston Globe in 1990. And there was a couple that was engaged to be married, and they met at the Hilton, I'm sorry, the Hyatt Hotel there in Boston. And they met with the event coordinator and chose the menu and the china and the silver and the crystal. They even looked at the photos of floral arrangements so that everything would be just so for their wedding reception. On the day that the invitations were to be sent out in the mail, the day of, the groom got cold feet and said to his fiancée, I'm not sure about this. I think we need to wait a little while. This is a big commitment after all. When the angry fiancé returned to the Hyatt to cancel the banquet, the events manager could identify with her story because the same thing happened to her some years ago, and she was very compassionate and understanding. And she said, however, I can't break the contract. I'm not permitted to do that. The best we can do is a 10% refund. The reception at that time was going to be $13,000 and she could get 10% of that back. The event uh, manager said, you could do one of two things. We can give you the $1,300 back, or you can continue along with the banquet. And the bride who was to be thought for a moment, remembering her past. She was formerly homeless formerly out on the streets. And she was able to finally get a job and start saving. And over a long number of years, had a, a, a good nest egg out of which she was going to pay for this reception. And so she and the event coordinator got together and decided to have the party of all parties. She said, I want to invite all of the homeless and the down and out and the struggling who are living on the streets to this party. So they, invite, they sent invitations to the homeless mission and to other agencies that worked with people who lived on the streets and invited them to the party. And they changed the menu to boneless chicken in honor of the groom. <laughs> so on that warm summer night, People who are used to eating half-gnawed pizza crust stuck on cardboard boxes dined on chicken cordon bleu. Hyatt ushers walked around in tuxedos serving hors d'oeuvres to senior citizens propped up on crutches and on aluminum walkers. And people who normally spent the night on the streets were able to take one night off from their hard life on the sidewalks outside and instead 
enjoy the feast of all feasts. They danced until midnight. I pray that our eyes would be as open, that we might see others with value and dignity and respect in the same way that God sees them, that we would take the low place, and that when we are going about our ways, that we would consider those who are left out, overlooked, and impressed. It might be the person who is new to your school who's sitting by her or himself who needs an invitation to your table. A friend of my daughter's moved out of state from here to another state and said that at her new school, which has already started, she didn't know anybody. She ate in the bathroom on her first day of school. That must not happen. We Christians, we know better, right? We need to have the eyes of Christ to take the low position and other times to invite others who are in need to our table. Because Jesus said, whatever you have done to the least of these, my children, you've done it unto me. We are all invited to the Lord's table today. There is a place for every single one of us. Jesus took bread and met with his disciples the night that he was betrayed, and he blessed it and <clears throat> gave thanks and said, Take, eat, do this in remembrance of me. As often as you meet together, do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, Jesus took the cup of wine and blessed it and gave thanks and poured it out, saying, This is my blood shed for you for the remission of your sins and the sins of many. As often as you meet together, take, eat. This do in remembrance of me. Let us pray. Thank you for inviting us, for welcoming us to your table, O oh God. Center us on Christ. Help us to do in these moments self-examination. Confess our sins, known and unknown. Seek your forgiveness as we receive this wonderful meal you've prepared for us. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.